All right, guys, good to see you. Grab a seat, and if you would, let's turn to 2 Peter, chapter 1. We didn't meet last week because of our week of fasting and prayer, and uh, the week before that, when we first started this epistle, we said that the emphasis of Peter's first epistle was on the um, external sufferings and persecution believers were facing from the outside world. It's always a problem. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So that's something we deal with on a regular basis, but especially uh, in Peter's day, a lot of it was going on. But uh, the emphasis of his second epistle was to warn believers about the dangers that were in their midst, that were in their midst. The devil's strategy of if you can't beat them, join them, (laughs) is almost as old as the church itself. In fact, It was predicted by Jesus before the church was even born when he gave the parable of the tares and wheat. You remember that out of Matthew 13? And just to paraphrase quickly, the devil was going to infiltrate churches and sow his people into good churches. Now, some of them don't know they're working for the devil. I think most of them really believe that they're Christians and working for the Lord. Of course, there's a lot of discord, a lot of disunity, a lot of backbiting and gossip that these folks will uh, cause, and that always is used by the devil to bring a church down, divide and conquer, and so on and so forth. But that's a reality that the devil is going to so counterfeit uh, Christians in a body. Why? Well, because it, uh, it saps the life of the body away. It's like the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt, that weren't really believers in, uh, they were not the covenant people of God. Uh, They had come to believe that Jehovah was a very powerful God, uh, so they wanted to hang out with the winner. Of course, the Lord beat up the gods of Egypt, so they didn't want to hang out with the losers. Uh, Trouble is, it was the mixed multitude that murmured first in the wilderness, because they weren't saved, they weren't spirit-filled. And there's a lot of folks that um, are in churches that are not really saved, not spirit-filled, and so they are the source of a lot of discord. Not, not, uh, not exclusively, but for the most part. Anyways, the devil understands that, as Jesus told us, against my church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. So Satan figured, if I can't destroy the church through outward persecution, I will infiltrate it and corrupt it from within. And he would accomplish this, and this is one of the main themes that Peter is dealing with. The devil would accomplish this through false teachers who would sow false doctrine within the walls of the church, neutralizing its power, corrupting its witness, and destroying its effectiveness in the world. That's kind of the background, is what we're dealing with, or Peter is. So, let's back up to verse 1, where Peter begins, Simon Peter, a bond servant, or a bond slave, as we have said, slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And in the Greek, that is our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter is calling Jesus their God. It's not God. And then the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek is he is God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 3, as his divine power, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. His divine power. The word power is the Greek word dunamis. It's the same word we get our English word dynamite from. It's the same Greek word used in Romans 1.16, Acts 1.8, many other places. But uh, let me read you those two, Romans 1.16. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of this good news, gospel, about Christ. It is the power, dunamis, of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, but you shall receive power, dynamic power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Guys, the same power that saved us and empowers us for the work of ministry 
is what Peter says sanctifies us and makes, it all, makes us all that God wants us to be. Understand that, because we have a tendency to acknowledge that uh, in, um, well, more than theory. I mean, we, we acknowledge that that's what the Bible teaches, that we are saved by the power of God. And yet we often begin to think that uh, our growth and our sanctification and our fruitfulness depends on our hard work. And a lot of times Christians uh, feel like if I just read my Bible for a certain amount of time every day, if I just get to you know a good number of services, uh, if I do this or that, uh, I'm going to grow, I'm going to be all that God wants me to be. And certainly we have a part in that. I'm not saying we do nothing. It's just that we can slip into the Galatian mentality. Remember Galatians 3, verse 3, what Paul says? He told these folks, having begun in the Spirit, you were saved by the power of the Spirit. Are you now working to perfect yourself, mature yourself in your own strength? We have to be careful. It's a subtle trap that we often fall into, and the devil pushes us into that. He wants us to be man-centered, self-focused, because when we are thinking we're going to do it, well, pride goes before a fall. But when I'm weak, see, when I'm not trying to you know, show God how tough I am, and I'll do it, Lord, just stand back, watch me work, watch me grow, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, when I'm weak and I acknowledge I'm weak, incapable of doing anything God wants me to do or how he wants me to live in my own strength, now I'm relying on his strength. That's when I'm really strong. Bottom line, the Christian life is a supernatural life, not a glorified self-help program. And again, guys, we are living at a time in the church's history, I'm thinking of America, of course, where so much of the preaching for so long has become man-centered that, um, well, there's a lot of folks that have begun to think that the church is kind of a glorified self-help program. You hear it in the, in the teaching and preaching a lot, uh, where, you know, as you're listening to these things, uh, it seems all about what you're going to do, what we're, the principles we have to apply, the five steps to Christian victory, the ten principles for, you know, fruit bearing or whatever. And, and certainly there are principles with regard to our walk. The, the Word of God does give us some of those, but we tend to put our faith in a principle uh, and not in a person, which we'll get to in a second. But remember what Paul said in Ephesians 3, verse 20. He said, now all glory to God who is able. See, God is the one who is able. Through his mighty power, dunamis, at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. It's all about God's strength. It's all, we have to understand that. And I'm convinced a lot of Christians are very defeated. God bless them. They're trying. They're, they love the Lord. And they're really trying to do the right thing, but the problem is they're trying in their own strength. The best day in your life, the most liberating day, is when you surrender and say, God, I can't. I can't. I remember my uncle, who was a very severe alcoholic for many years, and uh, got saved and uh, tried in his own strength to give up the drinking, even after he got saved as a young believer, and uh, just couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. And he told me how that one day he just got on his knees and said, God, I can't do it. I, I cannot stop drinking. And Lord, if you don't, if you don't work, it's, it's just not going to happen. And he said he got up off his knees and never drank another drop for the rest of his life. We have to understand this principle. The idea of God's mighty power at work within us. Understand what Peter is saying. The idea of God's mighty power at work within us is a reference to Jesus Christ who lives within us through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. This is exactly the point I believe Peter was making in verse 3 when he says, as his, underline his divine power, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And in the Greek, the his points back not to God in general, but to Jesus in particular, back in verse 2. This, I believe, guys, is Peter's way of saying the very thing that Paul the Apostle told us in Galatians 2, verse 20. Why don't you turn, y'all know, turn to it, though. 
they're both saying essentially the same thing. Peter is saying that it's his divine power, the Lord Jesus, who lives in us. That's the power to live the Christian life. Paul stated it even more clearly in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Now, that's surrender. That's crucifying the flesh, but surrendering completely to the power of God. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Once again, guys, the power to live the Christian life doesn't come from a principle. It comes from a person, Jesus Christ. He won the victory on Calvary's cross. He vanquished principalities and powers, the devil and his demons, of course, through his death and resurrection. And since we are in him, and of course, he and us. He said, wait, wait a minute, that's always confused me. Bible says that we're in him, but also that he's in us. How does that work? Good question. Imagine that you were, uh, you know, had a, uh, just a, maybe a shallow pool in your yard, all right? And you took a glass, clear glass, and you put it in the pool. Now the glass is in the pool, and the pool is in the glass, because the glass is clear in the pool, it's invisible. And that's kind of the Christian life, all right? The glass and the pool, the water has become one together in a sense, we are immersed in the body of Christ. We get saved. He fills us. We are one with each other. Hopefully, we're invisible, too. Where when people see us, they don't really see us. They see him that lives inside of us. And uh, so, but, but, but since as Christians, we are in him and he is in us through, through his Holy Spirit. Listen, all the victory and power we need to live the Christian life comes through him. We just need to look to Jesus by faith to live his life through us. As Paul said, the life which I now live in the flesh, listen, I live by faith in the Son of God. Guys, it's the faith that releases the power of God into our lives to uh, save us, to give us strength to live for Him. It's not hard work, self-effort. It's not relying in our own strength. Again, Galatians 3, verse 3, Paul said that's foolishness. Don't fall into that trap. Having begun in the Spirit, you're not going to be made perfect you're not going to become mature uh, in your own strength now of course it, it all starts with us receiving jesus as our lord and savior which causes us to be a you know born of the spirit born again and that brings us guys into a deep abiding relationship with jesus now this is really what peter's talking about although you may not see it in the english uh clearly but um Everything we're talking about, victory, fruitfulness, uh, you know, all the, the power to, to be all that God wants us to be. Of course, it all starts at the moment we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. At that moment, we are made one with him. But it's, it's a very intimate oneness. This relationship uh, is, is something very special. And uh, this is really what Peter, it's a, a deep abiding relationship, is, is what Peter is getting at when he talks about this knowledge. Uh, this is what he's referring to. It isn't a, a knowledge that is superficial or a knowledge that uh, is uh, just casual. It's a knowledge that is deeply intimate and experiential. The same word used of a man uh, and a woman, uh, husband or wife, who know each other in marriage. There's a very intimate uh, relationship implied there. This is the kind of relationship that Peter is talking about that we have when we gave our heart to Christ and became one with him. Look, there's a lot of people, a lot of people who attend church or that have even grown up in the church that have a superficial head knowledge of Christ. In other words, they know the doctrinal facts with regard to his life, his death, his resurrection. But listen, they have no firsthand experiential knowledge of him because they're not connected to him by the Holy Spirit. They're not born again. And Peter speaks of the knowledge of Jesus that brings the power of God into our lives and allows us to live for him. He uses the Greek word epigenosis. Epigenosis. Epigenosis is a word that speaks of a knowledge that is deep, genuine, and experiential, as opposed to a knowledge that is superficial and theoretical. The Greek word epigenosis is a stronger form of the Greek word gnosis. 
which in part, I believe, was Peter's way of coming against the heresy of Gnosticism. That's where the word Gnosticism comes from. It comes from the Greek word gnosis. We talked about this last time. The, the Greek word gnosis is a word for knowledge. And uh, this group of individuals just took that idea and they made a verb, uh, made a noun out of it and called themselves Gnostics. Gnostics. They believed they were more spiritual than anyone else. Of course, we don't have any Gnostics in the church today. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I've, I've met a few. Think that they're more spiritual. They can't be taught anything. They already know everything. Uh, they're more spiritual than anyone else. Okay, They're the ones that are always hearing from God. Nobody hears from God like they do. The Gnostics prided themselves on their knowledge, spiritual knowledge, that they claimed not even the apostles had uh, when it came to understanding the deeper things of God. No pride there obviously. And they were always going around teaching people. And see, whenever you claim to have insight into spiritual truth, you have revelation about spiritual truth nobody else has. Well, it appeals to the pride men. That's why Gnosticism grew like crazy uh, in the first century, because it appealed to the pride in people. Everyone wants to think that they're a little more spiritual than everyone else, okay? And uh, the Gnostics really, they really cornered the market, if I could put it that way, on that idea. And they were always teaching people that if they meditated just the way we teach you, okay, if you chant exactly the way we instruct you, because we got the inside track on this spiritual truth, well, then all the secret treasures of hidden spiritual wisdom and knowledge are going to be unlocked to you. That's what they were saying. That's why... People flocked to these guys. Now, they sounded very spiritual. So many people that I run across come across so spiritual. You know, when you talk to them, it's always so deep, you know. And um, sometimes you get kind of uh, taken in by these folks. Uh, I remember years ago, I had, um, we had a Calvary pastor in the area, and he was one of these guys. He was always hearing from God. He always had special insight from God. Uh, I couldn't tell him anything, you know. I remember after having lunch with him one day and him giving me his spiritual shtick, and I was, uh, you know, not that old in ministry, and I was kind of wild by his commitment to the Lord and his depth of his relationship with the Lord and, uh, and all, and I just left there feeling kind of carnal and uh, kind of, you know, just like, Wow, this guy's really spiritual. Gee, I'm just a carnal dirtbag. Uh, you know, that kind of a thing, right? Then come to find out a little later down the road, he uh, was having an affair with his, you know, uh, you, know you, get this, you get the idea. And then I read Romans 14 again, where Paul said, those, this guy was so sure of everything, black and white. He was legalistic, actually. And Paul said, those who are legalistic are not the most spiritual. They're the least spiritual. Because they can't handle grace. Everything has to fit in their boxes. Everything has to be black and white. But God teaches us things. God teaches us things, okay? But Paul, you know, I love Paul, you know. He dealt with this issue too. He dealt with the Gnostics, just like Peter and, and, and John and, and all of the apostles. And uh, when it came to all this special wisdom that these guys were always promoting that they had i love what paul said in colossians 2 verse 8 i'll paraphrase he said don't listen to that nonsense don't be taken in by these you know these guys who come across so spiritual look the christian life how can i put it the greatest theologians have spent their entire life studying god's word and have never really plumbed the depth completely of God's word. That's how incredible it is. And yet, a child can interact with God's word and know enough to, to receive Christ and be saved. Uh, God's word is a miracle. And I really believe that God, you know, I, I think that the Lord has kept it simple for the most part. Because if it was only the very intelligent, highly intellectual that could grasp the truth of God's word, you know what? Uh, that would leave most of us out. As Paul said, you know, not many uh, noble, wise, super intelligent are called by God. God chooses the foolish, the base, the weak, the nobodies to do his greatest work through. And that's, that was our job description. So, but Paul says, look, don't listen to that nonsense. 
in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and by virtue of you being one with him, you have access to all of God's truth. And guys, that's why Peter used, I think, I mean, I, this is why I believe Peter used the stronger of the two Greek words for our knowledge of Jesus Christ as Christians. The Gnostics claimed to have secret knowledge about God. They had Gnosis knowledge. Peter says, we have a greater and deeper knowledge than them. We have epigenosis knowledge. What does that mean? Our knowledge is greater than theirs because we are one with Christ. You can't have a closer relationship than that. We have been married to Jesus. We are connected to him. His life is in us. Uh, the Spirit of God who wrote the Bible fills us. I mean, the Gnostics, let them have their Gnosis knowledge, whatever that is. We have epigenosis knowledge, even greater than that, because we have Christ in us. We don't just learn about him, we have him in our hearts. Look, the only way a person can gain knowledge of spiritual truth and the wisdom applied into their lives is by receiving Jesus into their heart, as we have said, as their Lord and Savior. And at which time, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to lead them in all spiritual truth as Jesus promised us he would in John 16, verse 13. The Spirit would lead us into all truth. Many Christians continue to be deceived into thinking that there's... Listen, be careful. Many Christians continue to be deceived into thinking that there's some information for living the Christian life that they're somehow lacking in their relationship with Jesus. Information not found in the Bible. You know, some secret principle or spiritual mystery that if they only knew, well, they would be instantly catapulted into spiritual power and victory. And so you have men who have made, and women teachers also, who have made it their whole ministry to play on this, to play on this lie that there is something missing that you don't have, and I have found it, and I'm going to share it with you. It's Gnosticism in the modern church. But again, in Colossians 2.8, Paul called that high-sounding nonsense. Oh, it sounds so deep. It's nonsense. And it's basically the folks that buy into this high-sounding nonsense it's a result basically of christians not having a high view of scripture what do i mean well not having a high view of scripture takes different forms uh, some people don't even believe god's word is inspired not not christians now i'm just talking about people in general okay obviously they don't have a high view of scripture at all but even in the church christians can fall prey to this mentality now they would never acknowledge that verbally they they don't, would probably never even acknowledge that it's a reality in their lives but it is and i'll tell you how uh, a big part of of not having a high view of scripture for evangelicals is not believing the word of god is listen sufficient sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness as peter said it was Guys, sufficiency simply means that everything we need in the way of truth to be saved and to live our lives, our Christian lives, is contained in God's Word. It doesn't need to be supplemented with any other source of knowledge or information. When it comes to an instruction manual for Christian living, the Bible is complete. Yeah, it's not only complete as an instruction manual, it's complete in the sense that it supplies the power. As you read it, the Spirit of God energizes those principles and that, that word in our lives. The Word of God is living and powerful. Because when God's Word meets a Spirit-filled believer, that's when the power is released. I mean, unbelievers can read God's Word, but without the Holy Spirit inside of them, first of all, they can't really interact with it. And secondly, it, it will never become powerful in their lives until they accept Christ. The Word of God is sufficient. I'm sorry to say there's a lot of churches that don't really believe that. I've run into pastors who have told me, it's not just the Bible, it's the Bible plus this or plus that. That's how we become well-adjusted, well-immature, uh, fruitful believers. Well, in Psalm 19, verse 7, David said, the law of the Lord, which is another way of saying the word of God, is what? Perfect. Perfect. The Word of God is perfect. 
The Hebrew word translated perfect is a word that means whole, complete, or sufficient. It conveys the idea of something that is comprehensive, so as to cover all aspects of an issue. Commentator Albert Barnes wrote, and I quote, The meaning of perfect is that Scripture lacks nothing for its completeness, nothing in order that it might be what it should be. It is complete as a revelation of divine truth. It is complete as a rule of conduct. It is absolutely true. It is adapted with consummate wisdom to the needs of man. It is an unerring, unerring guide of conduct. There is nothing there which would lead men into error, end quote. Now, the word of God is perfect. And when it gives birth, remember what Peter said in his first epistle, I think chapter 1, verse 22 or 3, we were born again by the word of God, right? When the word of God being perfect, when it gives birth to a brand new child of God, okay? When a person is born again, the Word of God has created that, the power of God. Be, you know, the Word of God, though, since the Word is perfect, the child it produces is also perfect. I like what Warren Worsby said on these lines. He said, and I quote, When you are born into the family of God by faith in Christ, you are born complete. God gives you everything you will ever need for life and godliness. Nothing has to be added, and you are complete in Him. Again, Colossians 2.10. The false teachers claimed that they had a special doctrine that would add something to the lives of Peter's readers. But Peter knew that nothing could be added. Just as a normal baby is born with all the equipment, quote-unquote, he needs for life and only needs to grow, so the Christian has all that is needed and only needs to grow. God never has to call back any of his models, quote-unquote, because something is lacking or faulty, end quote. Now, unfortunately, guys, it is at this very point, the sufficiency of Scripture, that Satan has focused his most vehement attacks today against the church and Christianity, attacks that have caused many evangelical pastors and leaders to err, to err. They have erred by buying into the lie that the Bible needs to be supplemented with the wisdom of the world of Christians are going to be fully victorious and fruitful. Probably the greatest example of this, and I've talked about it before, so I'm not going to belabor it again. But no doubt the greatest example of this, and this has been going on for, oh, I don't know, 100 years, is psychology. Psychology. There was a time, in fact, it might still be going on, but years ago when I was doing a study on this, I, I, I checked some of the stats on these uh, things, and there was a time, and again, could be going on still to this day, when churches, instead of hiring godly men to exegete and teach the scriptures, were hiring counselors and psychologists on staff because the Bible wasn't sufficient to deal with the complex problems of modern society. We needed to supplement the word of God with the wisdom of man, I guess, is what they were. They actually basically came out and said that. The Bible was not sufficient. Of course, psychology, if you've ever studied psychology, and I'm not putting down all there's Christians who are psychologists, not Christian psychologists. There, there's no such thing as Christian psychology, okay? That's a misnomer. There's no such thing. There are Christians who are psychologists. But there is no difference between secular psychology and what is called Christian psychology. It's psychology. It comes from two different Greek words, suke and lagos. Suke is the Greek word for soul. Lagos is a study of or the knowledge of. So psychology is a study of the soul. The soul is non-physical. Therefore, it takes it out of the realm of science, which by its definition, very definition, can only deal with that which can be observed or reproduced in a laboratory. When you start dealing with the realm of the spiritual, the non-physical, which the soul of man is, you move out of the realm of science into the realm of conjecture. There is a branch of psychology that deals with human behavior. That is scientific. But all the other branches that deal with, you know, the non-physical soul of man, well, that is not a science. Psychology is more of a man-centered religion than it is any kind of scientific endeavor. And I don't have time to get into it. You can get, get our study from uh, the Battle for Truth. We, we did three parts on this issue. 
All as I'm saying is that the church bought into... When Satan psychologized the church, he pulled off a major coup. The couch replaced the church. Therapy replaced theology. The goal now was not holiness, it was happiness. I mean, when Satan psychologized the church, he pulled off a major coup. I mean, what did people, what did, they, what did Christians do for 1900 years before the psychology came around? Well, what did they do? How did they function? Well, I'll tell you how they did. They did just fine. They flourished under the teaching of the Word of God and the biblical counseling ministries of godly pastors and, listen, other spirit-filled believers and the love of the body of Christ, which was instructed by the Lord to bear each other's burdens, pray for one another, come alongside and encourage each other, and so on. You know, they call psychology the uh, talking cure, basically. And they've done studies. I thought this was interesting. One study, they took two groups of people. Both groups, people were having problems, okay? One group they sent to professional psychologists. The other group just let them talk to friends and family. Both groups got better at the same rate. Because you know what we need? We need people to talk to. Trouble is, we've gotten so busy, and the church has become very... Um, self-focused. I don't want to put the time in. Certainly some people are real time drainers. I understand that. But it was a sad day in the church's history when we passed Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, off to professional counselors who had to pay to have somebody listen to them because we were just too busy. This, this is where we are, okay? This is where we are. I mean, you think people in Peter's day or in the early part of our nation's history, you think that the, these people were free of problems? Oh, it's so much more difficult today. People's lives today are so much more complex, so much more... Are you kidding me? Seriously? I mean, these folks live with extreme poverty, disease, persecution. Peter's day, Nero was on the throne. My goodness, he was a psychopath. He was killing Christians like crazy. Yet Peter said, honor the king. Pray for those in uh, leadership. But they had to live with extreme poverty, disease, persecution, every other form of hardship you can imagine. And yet the word of God and the power of the spirit and the love of the body of Christ was sufficient. Nothing has changed, folks. Only our attitude towards the sufficiency of God's word. Listen to what Paul said. I'll have you turn to these. 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And God, and may I say that he's called the wonderful counselor and god is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having listened all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work i mean paul is telling us right here peter saying the same thing everything we need for life and godliness we have in the knowledge of christ our relationship with him paul said the same thing God has promised everything you need for every work he is calling you to do, everything that, you know, in the way of living for him, bearing fruit, he's given you all sufficiency. Turn to Psalm 1. I think that we would categorize secular psychiatrists and psychologists who are unsaved, they would fall under the category of, well, put it bluntly, the wicked. Psalm 1, verse 1, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, word of God, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Stick with the word. Stick with the word. I don't know if it's still true. It might not be. But there was a, a time when the profession that had the most suicides was psychologists. Why is that? Because they're the folks that are supposed to have the answers for everyone else. They don't even have the answers for their own lives. Well, back to Second Peter 1. So he said in verse 3, As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, listen, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
He said, Through the knowledge of him he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. Author William MacDonald said, and I quote, It is estimated that there are at least 30,000 promises in the Bible. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, once said, The pathway of life is strewn so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take one step without treading upon one of them, end quote. Once again, guys, these exceedingly great and precious promises are found in God's word, of course, and cover everything from the promise of eternal life to those who would believe in and receive Jesus as their Savior, to the promises of God's faithfulness in taking care of us, providing for us, watching over us, um, never leaving us nor forsaking us as we are on our Christian journey through this life. Uh, no matter what, he will never leave us nor forsake us. To the ultimate promise that Peter opened his first epistle uh, with as he talked about that uh, uh, as believers in Christ we have waiting for us, I'm quoting 1 Peter 1 verse 4, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. There are so many great and precious promises, and we need to understand these promises. Now listen to me. A promise, and, and a lot of these are conditional promises. They're, they're not automatic. I mean, what do I mean? Well, uh, God says, you know, um, if you bring your request to him, leave them with him, then the peace of God, which passes human understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of promises that are not automatic. We are commanded to do certain things, mostly believe, okay, um, but appropriate and so on. And that's how these promises become a reality in our lives. God's given us the checkbook. You've got to sign your name, though, all right? You've got to, by faith, you've got to say, this applies to me. Not just to the body of Christ in general. This promise applies to me. You've got to personalize it. God has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises in his word, that through these you might be partakers of his divine nature. One author said, When the sinner believes on Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God uses the word of God to impart the life and nature of God within. A baby shares the nature of its parents, and a person born of God shares the divine nature of God. End quote. Of course, even though a baby has inherited the nature of its parents, listen to me, they still have to be taught and trained, encouraged and disciplined in the right path in life, the right course, that they might grow up to become the physical embodiment of their parents' values and characteristics. The same is true with the children of God. We have within us all the potential to become the living embodiment of God's nature, his values, his his uh, characteristics. In fact, that is the goal of the Christian life. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 1? He said, therefore, be imitators of God as his dear children. The Greek word is mimetai. Where do we get our word mimic from? The goal of the Christian life is to mimic the personality, the nature of God. And again, that, that doesn't just happen without any effort on our part. You're in church tonight. Because you want to know the Word of God. You want to study the Word of God. Why do you want to study the Word of God? Because you realize that you can't be all God wants you to be if you don't know all God has said. And that would include the promises He's given to you and me. So you're here because you're putting the effort in because you want, you want to grow. You want to become more like Christ. God bless you. So a lot of Christians who are living their Christian lives on autopilot. They think it's just going to all happen automatically. No wonder they live in carnality for most of their life. Many die in the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt and never entered the promised land, the life of the Spirit, because they never really trusted God and knew the Word and uh, clung to those promises and so on. Again, guys, God has provided the resources, the power, and the promises that we need. And if we cling to them, and claim them by faith. I'm talking about the promises of God. Well, we will more and more grow into the divine nature that God has given us at the moment of salvation. His Spirit lives within us. The rest of our Christian life is learning to submit to the Spirit of God who wants to transform us day by day into the image of Christ more and more. We, we talked about 2 Corinthians 3.18 many times. 
where Paul said, and the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed, and the Greek word is transformed, into his glorious image day by day. That comes from drawing close to him, knowing his word, clinging to his promises by faith, and so on. Now look, how can we be sure we have been born of God and have his nature within us? So a lot of people ask, in fact, I just had two people on Sunday after the message come up and ask me the very same question. How do I know if I'm really born again? How do I know that, that I'm saved and the Spirit of God, the nature of God is within me, basically? Let me give you two main ways, okay? Two main, these are not exhaustive, but let me just give you two simple main ways, okay? How do I know that I've been born of God and have his nature within me? Two ways. Nature determines appetite. Secondly, nature determines behavior. First of all, nature determines appetite. Listen, before I got saved, I had a hunger, a lust, really, for the things of this world, the things that appeal to my fleshly fallen nature. In other words, I craved the garbage of this world with all of its polluted, defiled pleasures. That was my natural appetite. John the Apostle talked about these things when he said in 1 John 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, and that's where we lived, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So the God of this world, the devil, has orchestrated everything in this world to appeal to the lust of our eyes, to the lust of our flesh, and to the pride of life. All of this is designed by him to keep us so busy and so lusting after the things of this life that we never really focus on the life to come. And and that's a real problem for, for many. But when I got saved, and I know you can attest to this too, when I got saved, God gave me his nature. And I knew it immediately because my appetite changed. My appetite changed. Now I crave the word of God. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't stop hunger. I had insatiable hunger for God's word. I used to read the word hours every day. I couldn't get enough of it. I never wanted to do that before I became a Christian. My appetite changed. You know, First Peter Chapter 1, verse 23, Peter says, you know, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's how we were born again. And then he goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 2, as newborn babes now desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. In other words, you know what? You have this now, this new nature. Feed your new nature. It wants God's word, the milk, because you're brand new. You're a, you're a new creation in Christ. You're just you're recently born again. Sure, you're not going to be able to understand the deeper things, things that theologians have spent years of their lives trying to understand. Keep it simple. Just get into the Word and let the Spirit of God feed your young spirit with whatever you can handle. I mean, obviously, you keep learning the Word of God, you keep studying, you keep learning things, but initially, you know, you read your Bible the first time through, and no, there's a lot I don't quite get, obviously, but there's a lot I do get. Okay, and I've told you my testimony, how I started reading the Bible about six months before I got saved. I I just always felt good people read the Bible. At one point, I'm going to read the Bible. New Year's resolution, we just come into a brand new year, and I'm going to read the Bible this year. And I pulled it out and began to read it, and wow, was that dry, was that a miserable experience. Well, I started with Genesis, and of course, you know, eventually got to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you know, I was wanted to kill myself it was so dry and boring you know and then about six months later Cindy and I went out to visit my folks and who had just moved to California uh, the year before my mom had recently gotten born again and um, she explained everything to to Cindy and I and gave me a a bible something that was a little more modern language a living bible and I uh, went home and somewhere along the line I, I accepted Christ and as I began to read the Bible after that point, well, it's a whole different ballgame when the author who wrote the Bible now lives in your heart. Uh, before, I mean, I read words on a page. I didn't get it. I, wasn't, I couldn't interact with it. It was as dry as dust, boring, no life in it, because there was no life in me. It wasn't the Word of God that was the problem. I didn't, I didn't have the life of the Spirit in me to interact with the life that was in God's Word, Right? But, but the point I'm making is that, guys, 
once I received Christ, I, I now hungered for the things of God, not the things of the world anymore. Now, new nature, uh, nature determines appetite, but nature also determines behavior. And of course, new appetites lead to new behaviors. This is something that Peter mentioned in chapter 2 of his second epistle. Turn to uh, 2 Peter 2, uh, verse 20. We'll have a lot more to say about this when we get to chapter 2, but I just want to bring it up because we're talking about nature and how nature determines appetite and behavior and so on. Listen to what Peter said. Now, let me tell you what I believe Peter is referring to. He's not talking about backslidden Christians. Please don't miss that. He's talking about apostates. What is an apostate? Somebody who professes faith in Christ, may have even walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, filled out the card, but they never really did accept Christ in, in truth. All right? And eventually, they went back to the world. Now, there are those folks who say, well, they lost their salvation. I don't believe they lost their salvation. I think Peter's point is they never had it. Their nature had never been changed. That, that's the, the key point. So in verse 20, for if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And again, we'll have a lot more to say about this when we get to chapter 2. Verse 21, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Look, Peter is saying that a person can come to church and hang around with Christians. And as they do, because you know how we are, we tend to become like those that we hang out with. That's why the Bible says, be careful, bad company corrupts good habits. You know, you're a Christian now. Don't hang out with the same old crowd. Uh, hang out with God's people, okay? You, you need each other to keep each other accountable, all right? But a person, an unbeliever, and a lot of the times this happens. For whatever reason, their life is a mess. They're feeling very empty inside. Somebody said they need God. Okay, I'm going to go to church because that's where God lives. And they come into church and they're confronted with a lot of loving people who immediately run up and give them a hug. Oh, we're so glad you're here. And they feel a part of a group. And maybe they haven't had that for many years, if ever. And so they feel like they belong now. And so they're hanging out with you guys, getting something to eat after church. And you're talking about the Bible. And so they're picking things up. And they're beginning to change even. Outward surface changes. But listen, that doesn't change their nature. Only receiving Christ in truth will change their nature by giving them a brand new one, the nature of God. So if they haven't prayed to receive Jesus and they're hanging out with godly Christians, they're going to change a little bit. They're going to clean up their act. They're not going to say, hey, let's go get a beer. They know better. They know you guys don't drink. Or let's go, ahead, go watch that new R-rated movie. No, they, they understand that. And so they're not doing it anymore because you're not doing it. So they're changing, but their nature has not changed. That part of them is still fallen. And eventually, guys, they will return to the world from which they came. Because listen to me, that is the environment that is consistent with their nature. Peter said it's like a dog eating its own vomit or a pig that's been washed returning to the mud hole. Why does a dog, uh, you know, I mean... There's something in the nature of, of animals that causes them to act certain ways. A dog will eat its own vomit. No, a human being wouldn't do that. That's not our nature. And I like the one about the pig, because I think that really communicates the point. You could take a pig out of the mud hole, take it to the barn, clean it up, you know, put a little bow around its neck, I guess. Bring it into the house where it's the pet now. It's a pet, Right? And it eats food from the table, and you, and you know, and it doesn't smell anymore because you're keeping it washed and you're keeping it perfumed a little bit. And and, and so, but what's going to happen eventually is that pig, because it's still got the nature of a pig, is going to eventually go back to the environment it has always known and it only feels comfortable in, and that is the mud hole. And that's Peter's point. When we got saved, God gave us a new nature. 
And we don't want to go back to the mud hole called the world because, as Peter said, where else can we go? Only you, the Lord Jesus Christ, has the words of eternal life. I mean, we have a different nature. We, we don't want to go back to the old life, back to the bar scene, back to the junk we used to do, all the mud and the filth we used to wallow in as unbelievers. That's, that's a whole different thing. Though. We have a brand new nature. And I know that that was my testimony. I know it was yours once I got saved. I mean, I didn't want to go partying anymore, hanging out with the old crowd. Now I desire to go to church. See, new, a new nature leads to new appetites and new behavior. And now I wanted to go to church, worship the Lord, read my Bible, get involved in ministry, serving my Lord, right? One author said, If nature determines appetite, and we have God's nature within, then we ought to have an appetite for that which is pure and holy. Our behavior ought to be like that of the Father, and we ought to live in the kind of spiritual environment that is suited to our new nature we ought to associate with that which is true to our nature the only normal fruit-bearing life for the child of god is a godly life got the nature of god in you it's going to produce a godly life okay because we possess this divine nature we have completely escaped the defilement and decay in this present evil world if we feed the new nature the nourishment of the word, then we will have little interest in the garbage of the world. But if we make provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14, our sinful nature will lust after the old sins, 2 Peter 1, verse 9. And we will disobey God. Godly living is the result of cultivating the new nature within, end quote. And that just means feeding it what it desires. A Christian can starve their new nature. In other words, a Christian can stop going to church, stop reading their Bible, uh, stop doing the things that will promote growth. Well, God doesn't force us to do these things. And many Christians have cut themselves off from all the beautiful things that their spirit is craving. And as they have cut themselves off more and more from the Bible, fellowship with the saints, church, and so on, what happens is the old appetites begin to rise up again. And now they're back, you know, hanging with the old crowd, drinking, smoking, swearing, whatever we used to do, right? That's what it means to backslide. Unless we're talking about a person like Peter mentions, who never really received the Lord in the first place, and they're only going back to the life that they still only know. All right, let's finish. Again, verse 4, as Peter is talking about these great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Listen having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. A big part of this transformation, and that's what we're talking about, being transformed more and more day by day into the image of Jesus Christ, again, 2 Corinthians 3.18, a big part of this transformation, and guys, don't miss this, this is the goal of the Christian life that we become more and more like Jesus because that's how our light shines more and more and that's how people are drawn to us. And we don't want really them being drawn to us. They're only drawn to us uh, so that we can give them Jesus. That's the idea. But a big part of this transformation, uh, that which testifies most loudly to the world around us that we belong to Jesus, is that we are, listen, escaping, escaping the corruption of the world around us. This is probably the single greatest point of well the fact that you are changing and you are becoming less and less like you used to be and more and more like jesus there's a lot of folks who may not agree with everything you believe but they can't argue with who you're becoming i mean you know a changed life is the greatest testimony to the power of god that jesus is real we could talk about doctrine all day long, and many Christians do, but there's no change in their life. And I'm telling you right now, the world is looking at all the guys at work that they're, this person's witnessing to, but he's out drinking, and he's hanging with, with these guys, and they're thinking he's a hypocrite. He's trying to be one of the guys to reach him for Christ. They're thinking, this guy's a hypocrite. The thing that impacts people the most for Christ is to see a believer, a person who was once an alcoholic or a drug addict, 
or you know some some other thing like that and now they're a christian and now they don't need to drink anymore they're not taking drugs their life is together they're happy this is the greatest testimony we could ever give the world this is the transformation that god wants to perform in each of us uh, day by day as we keep drawing close to jesus we draw close to jesus by the power of the spirit and he's working on us to transform us more and more into the image of christ Peter begins this epistle by urging his readers, all of us really, to keep a close watch on their personal lives, talking to them back then, but of course us too, to keep a close watch on their personal lives, reminding them that the Lord has called his people to a life of virtue. He says that very clearly. He opens up this epistle. This life, Peter tells them, was made possible through the new birth, at which time they became partakers of his divine nature. And again, guys, this new birth, along with the Spirit's power, allowed them and all believers in Christ to escape the corruption that is in the world and to live a life of holiness and virtue. Notice what he says there, having escaped, verse 4, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Have we escaped, past tense, the corruption that we used to walk in? Aren't we still dealing with the flesh? I mean, we're not perfect yet. Well, listen to me. On the one hand, we have escaped, past tense, the corruption that is in the world, while on the other hand, we are still escaping, present tense, the corruption of the world. Here's what we have side by side. In the Christian life, you have the positional truths and you have the practical truths. Positionally, I have been saved. I have been delivered from the old life. I am holy. I am righteous. I am sinless. You can find all of these in the New Testament. All right? Those are positional truths. I have escaped the corruption that is in the world. Practically, though, I am growing. I am being sanctified. I am overcoming my flesh as I draw close to him every day. Guys, the positional truth, that's salvation. The practical truth is sanctification. They both are a reality in the life of a believer. And that's and I, I love Hebrews 10, verse 14. I'll just read this and we'll close. For by one offering, Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. There are the two, the positional and the practical, back to back. He has perfected us forever. That's positional when I accept the Christ. We are being sanctified. That's the practical side, okay? So just keep that in mind. And, and, and why do I think that's an important truth? Well, a lot of reasons, but here. It's important because the devil wants us to focus on the practical because when he gets us to focus on the practical and all we are not yet in our walk, then he can condemn us. But if we remember, well, but in Christ, I have a positional standing before God. I am perfect. I am holy. I am righteous. I am blameless. I will never be cast into hell, so on and so forth. If I nail those things down in my head and understand that's a positional reality in Christ, then I realize that everything else is just me showing God how much I love him by wanting to obey him, wanting to grow, you know, wanting to, um, to live the way he wants. And when I stumble and fall, I confess my sin. He's faithful and just to forgive me. My sin picks me up, dusts me up, and says, okay, son, let's keep going. I'm like a little kid trying to learn how to walk. I'm going to fall. And I do fall. You do too. Every time we fall, we come before God. He picks us up. We confess our sins, dusts us off, tells us how much he loves us. Keep going. Just keep relying on me. And we keep walking. That's the practical side. I, I love what God said to Ephraim back in the Old Testament. Or about Ephraim, I should say. And how they had strayed. But what God says, he says I remember uh, when they were young as a tribe how I took them by the arms and I taught them to walk as a father teaches his children. Just holding the little arms of that toddler. Just cut. And this is how the father teaches us to walk. Don't let the devil condemn you because you're not all that you want to be. I'm not either. But I know in Christ I'm, I'm everything I'm ever going to be because Jesus was perfect. Amen. So we will continue. No doubt pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, next time so father we thank you 
for these truths, Lord, in your word. Father, give us grace to remember them, to apply them, to live them in our daily life. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you don't just command us to live the Christian life. You come inside of us through the Holy Spirit, and you walk our walk with us. You, you, you strengthen us from within. We just thank you, Lord, for your kindness. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.